Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, today I got two great guests that I've uh, got to know quite a bit over the last few years. Uh, guys who share my passion for public land advocacy, for hunting public lands. Um, and they're, how, how do I say this without seeming impolite? They're younger than I am. We'll just use that term. Uh, and I learn a lot from them. They have a different view, a different perspective. They both have some really cool platforms out there that I hope you'll follow. But I'm always interested in how younger people, and I shouldn't say really young, I think they're in their early 30s, uh, look at some of these issues, uh, especially conservation, public land advocacy. But if you follow the hunting public, uh, they're a YouTube channel. Uh, Aaron Warbritton is here. Uh, hunting public is based in Iowa, but they specialize in hunting public lands, not out here in the West, but in the Midwest. Really, really cool stuff. You should follow them if you don't. And then our other guest sitting over here looking at me, kind of funny, is... Uh, Great guy, Sam Soholt. If you see the public land school bus campaign that's been going on for the last two years, we had Sam on our podcast a couple of years ago when he came up with this idea of building an old school bus into a camper and traveling around the, the western United States. He also owns a, a company called Public Land Tees, uh, T-shirts and hats and other stuff that he sells. And he contributes a good chunk of that revenue to conservation causes. Uh, recently just made a big donation to RMEF uh, to help them. So anyhow, uh, as quick as I get done with these sponsor introductions, we're going to have a really good conversation with Mr. Sam and Mr. Aaron, and uh, hope you'll stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we want to thank Leupold for making the podcast uh, what it is, uh, supporting us in all that we do. Amazing optics. If you're in the market for optics, go to leupold.com and you'll see what they have. When you go to your retailer, I hope you'll look at Leupold Optics and you'll end up with some of those optics that have those really cool gold rings on the end of them. I've been using them. I bought my first low-pulled rifle scope. I think I was 14 or 15 when I bought that thing. So I've uh, I got a long track record there. Uh, Orion Coolers, it's the hot time of year, and we're getting ready, moving into hunting season here, where you're going to be thinking about, oh, how, if I'm going to fill my tag, how do I get this meat home and keep it cool? Orion Coolers is your solution. Go to oriancoolers.com and use promo code RANDY and save 20%. Um, let's see, on X, yeah, I think we got a lot to say about on X Maps where to start. No, we're not going to make this a whole Onyx Map commercial. So anyhow, onyxmaps.com, uh, go out there. Uh, we're just getting ready to release our new four episode e-scouting series with them out on our YouTube channel. Uh, go there. And if you buy app products from Onyx and use promo code Randy, you're going to save 20%. And then we have GoHunt.com. Right now, this we're recording this podcast in July of uh, 2019. And I think through October, uh, GoHunt is giving everybody a free look, a 30-day free trial to the GoHunt Insider. 
Um, you hear us talk about it. It's what we use. It's how we draw tags. It's the whole works of, I mean, when you sign up for the 30-day free trial, you get everything that that I get as a subscriber. So go to gohunt.com forward slash Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, and you'll, uh, you'll get a 30-day free trial. And they also have a really cool gear shop that if you use promo code Randy when you check out of their gear shop, you're going to save 10% on that also. But anyhow, enough of me rambling and carrying on. Let's uh, get Sam and Aaron on the on the mic here. Uh, they're looking at me, wondering if I'm just going to talk all morning. So here we go. Thanks for being here. Well, folks, I have no idea where this conversation is going to go because I got two crazy guys sitting here with me who I've got to know over the last few years, and they're a ton of fun. Uh, but welcome to another episode of uh, Loopholds Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, on my left is Aaron Warburton from uh, the Hunting Public, uh, world famous public <laughs> public land whitetail slayer. Uh, to my right is Sam Soholt. Uh, probably disguised as a school bus driver, mm -hmm. but really a badass photographer, expert waterfowler, uh, could, could be teaching classes to the world about how to arrow South Dakota whitetails uh, here left, and there left-handed with his eyes closed that's right are, are you left-handed <laughs> i am left-handed oh wow all right right yes. right-handed <laughs> are you left-handed no oh all right no so that's why we set sam over on this side mm -hmm. he's left-handed yeah but that's right anyhow folks these are two fun guys that if you aren't following them i sure think you'll you would benefit from doing that We'll yeah. teach you what not to do, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, can but, tell you a lot of stories of failure. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got years of them. I, <laughs> I should just do a whole season of stupid mistake episodes. Should. I yeah. bet you I could fill three seasons. Yeah, guaranteed. Uh, yeah. Those yeah. do better on our channel anyway. Do they? Yeah. yeah. People want to see us fail and screw up and everything. Yeah. Luckily, we give them plenty of that. <laughs> I mean, there's, yeah. uh, there's one kill video for every 15 <laughs> other videos, it seems uh, like. Well, it's got, it means more relatable, right? I mean, oh, for sure. Like nobody's, nobody goes out in the woods every time and gets it done. No. I mean, there's there's got to be a couple guys like that, but for the most part... It's more relatable when you're getting your ass handed to you in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I still remember the first year we did On Your Own Adventures, uh, 2008, we filmed. And then the first year on the Outdoor Channel was 2009. And my buddy Scott Jones, we're in Nevada. I don't even have a tag. He's got his longbow. And we don't kill a buck. So we send it into the network. And... A lot of folks don't know how this works, so I'll, I'll give a little bit of explanation. But you send it to the network. They have their QC or quality control department looks at it, make sure you don't have any egregious things going mm -hmm. on there and you're within the confines of what your production contract is. And they email me back, hey, you didn't kill anything. Yeah, so <laughs> I got a few of those this year. What's the problem? <laughs> I think that year we had three no-kill episodes, and I remember telling the person, you know, next year I'll be lucky if we have three kill episodes. We did pretty darn good this year. Yeah. And they warned me to just, like, email after email and, and even higher up the food chains. Like, Randy, look, you're new at this. We strongly urge you not to you know, think about something else, do a best of or something. I'm like, no, 
this is what this is what happens with me and so that's that's how they ran for a long time yeah and so <laughs> i said it worked i told them you know, I'm writing the check to you. A lot of people don't know that on outdoor TV, you pay the network to air your stuff. And uh, they're like, all right, yeah, I guess, yeah, you're in compliance with your contracts. I guess, yeah, we'll air it. We're ju just know that we suggest otherwise, well, whatever. And it was one of our best yeah. viewed, if you, if you can believe Nielsen ratings. Yeah. It, it, it was <laughs> yeah. one of our most, uh, one of our higher viewed episodes that year. And then circling around the following year with some other people who produce outdoor TV, they're like, how'd that go? How'd you, are you sure you want to be doing that? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you knew how many times I don't kill anything, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to film a hundred hunts a year if they want me to get 13 kill episodes. But, yeah. Yeah. You're so. right. You're paying them. Yeah. So, and you had, Sam, you'd have to sell multiple buses in order to, <laughs> to get a show on there. Oh, yeah. Like it's a, yeah. You know. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a, a quite a few reasons why these guys are together for this podcast. One is if you look over on our whiteboard there, our why, to promote self-guided public land hunting and create advocates for that cause, you guys seem to be doing the same thing. And uh, then you guys knew each other from back when... I don't know. Napoleon was still <laughs> leader of France or we something. Lived, yeah. We lived with each other. Yeah. Your couch is still in my house. Yeah, that's good. It's it a, is. It's a comfy where, couch. Where was this at, in Iowa? Yeah, mm -hmm. Albia, yeah. Iowa in 2011. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like hunting industry relationships, like we go mm. way back. Oh, yeah. You know, eight years now. Like that's just a long time in this yeah. space. Oh, yeah. for sure. But yeah, we were both interns at Midwest Whitetail back in 2011. Uh, I think you had just finished up at Mizzou yep. and I was still uh, in my master's program at NDSU. I had one online class, but I took the internship because I could be anywhere for that one. And yeah, yeah we just happened to be both in Southern Iowa for a fall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I still and live then in I, the same house. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> I st we started renting this house in Albia to work for Winky at Midwest Whitetail. Mm -hmm. And me and Sam and our buddy Ben Koopman lived in that house that first year. And I still live there, and his couch <laughs> is still there. And that, and you had at the time, we hadn't been on any elk hunts, any western hunts, or anything. Uh, I mean, we're we're early twenties, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, so we had some deer mounted in the living room and stuff, and we were always talking about elk hunting. Sam was like, "Yep, I uh, haven't shot an elk, and I haven't went." So I just bought this big poster of an elk and I put it on the wall. So it's just like this. It was huge. Six foot wide elk poster. So I, and it's still in my home. So the backstory on that poster is I, I worked at Shields uh, All Sports in Sioux Falls. Yeah. And I worked in the stock room and every year they would re-up, you know, banners and posters and whatever. And so to decorate my college house, they were throwing away this huge stack of old posters and whatever. And so I got like a pickup load <laughs> of, of like display banners. You know, I had one like, um, yeah, I got the elk one. I had this huge like uh, duck hunting photo, but yeah, my entire college house was just plastered with all of Shields' old, um, yeah, display ads. Yeah. And <laughs> some more, you know, some more, well, I would say less than important information. Um, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> Sam taught me how to cook eggs. I did. Really? Yeah. yeah. You didn't know how to cook eggs when you were No. I'm inept at a lot of things, Randy. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> to the point, so, to the point where, so uh, my best purchase 
like in college, was an electric griddle, right? Oh, freshman yeah. year. Yeah. yeah, you have to have one. Yeah. So I bought one my freshman year, cooked, I have no idea, countless, you know, dozens of eggs, French toast, pancakes, bacon, mm -hmm. you name it, like everything, like everything on it. Yeah. So I bring it down to Iowa and I teach Warp how to make fried eggs. And, uh, you know, he's standing right there over my shoulder. And I'm like, all right, you just tap it on here and just crack, you know, a little <laughs> Pam on there, <laughs> crack it on there, let him get to about this, flip him over. And, uh, and then when I left as a parting gift, I left my electric griddle back with him yeah. at Whoa. the house. So you like, still got that too. Uh, no, no, I, I cooked so much on that griddle <laughs> that I ruined it. See, I, I learned how to operate the microwave when I was a kid. Yeah. So every meal went through the microwave for about 15 years. And then <laughs> Sam came along and I figured out how to use a griddle. So every meal went through the griddle for the next five years. Wow. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Huh. Broke the griddle. You just, you, there's only so many meals you can get out of a $20 griddle. Yeah. So, I yep. got a, I got our money's worth of, or your money's worth out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. I guess I was, I, I had a different childhood when I was 13. My mom bought a little small town diner. And I was the backup cook, the backup. Well, I, I was the A-team swamper yeah. of cleaning and stocking right. shelves. And I was the backup waiter and the backup, you know, janitor. I, I was, so. Yeah. So you I, know how to do all that stuff. Then. Don't tell my wife. The secret's safe with us yeah. and the 100,000 people yeah. that will listen and to this. Full <laughs> my wife doesn't listen to the podcast, so I'm safe in, in saying that. And, and actually, uh, uh, my best friend in high school, her name was Teresa Hymans. Uh, she used to call me Cinderella because <laughs> I'd be running around my mom's restaurant being told, Randy, I need this, I need that. My mom couldn't afford to hire hardly anybody, so. I'm like, well, I'm free labor, so yeah, <laughs> I I can cook an egg, I can cook a hamburger, I can, yep. yeah, I I can even make homemade, I, I can make a lot of things, but boy, I try not to. I mean, being <laughs> a really good cook is almost as bad as being really handy. Mm -hmm. And Sam, you're you always... you built the school bus into a a motorhome, so you're. You're really handy. He's pretty resourceful. Yeah. 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 So you're screwed, man. <laughs> yep. I, I don't know how you're ever going to shake that. I wonder that how label. many times I the, the line from the Red Green Show ran through my head when I was building the bus. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Women don't find you handsome. At least they'll find you handy. Yeah. Is <laughs> Red... I, so I, I think I he's still Red doing stand-up comedy. Yeah. And I laughed so hard when that used to be on... It was a regular show for mm -hmm. years and years. And I'm like... This guy, he, he had to be my neighbor, Vance. <laughs> he had to be. And uh, when I saw your school bus, I thought yeah. about the same thing. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> but, so you guys both do a lot of promotion of public land stuff. Mm -hmm. yep. and, it, and it's interesting. Aaron, you're from Iowa or based out of Iowa. You're originally from Missouri. Is it Missouri or Missouri? Yeah, the guys asked me that yesterday, and it's kind of just go with what you feel. Yeah, we don't. Really. Kind of depends okay. on where you live in the state, right? Well, yeah, yeah that, that's it what, does. Yeah, to I a was told degree. if you're south of Highway of uh, Interstate 70, seventy, it's yeah. Missouri. Mm -hmm. If you're north, it's Missouri. Yeah, I, I'd say that's probably true, but we're kind of a, a lost band of rednecks in Northeast Missouri. <laughs> like, we have our own You were trying to get to Arkansas, everything. but you yeah. didn't make yeah, it. Yeah, huh? I don't. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah, I belong somewhere in Tennessee or I, Kentucky well, or I just, Arkansas. The first probably. time I met Warb, I just remember being like, man, he must be from like really far south. Yeah. And I was like, where are you from? And he's like, oh, about, whatever, like an hour and a half from here. <laughs> like, yeah. like just across the border from Iowa. Yeah. And I was like... 
I was just really confused at how southern the accent was Dude, at first. Like but, everybody but then makes I met, fun of me about it on the show. No, all but the time. then I met everybody like that you know around there, and everyone talks the exact same. Yeah. So that's just how it is. Like my accent, it changes all the time, and yeah. I can't really explain it. But it, like if we go to a bar and I have three or four beers, it's going to get more southern every single <laughs> beer. <laughs> yeah. My wife says when I go back to northern Minnesota, when I come back, I have a really strong. Minnesota accent again. I, yeah. But when I go back there, my brother, he's got this, like, the thickest accent. is the, like, maple syrup in January. <laughs> it's so thick. He's like, ever since you moved away, man, you got an accent. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I need to get you on the podcast, and we'll ask my audience who has an accent there. But. So yeah. how, how does a guy from South Dakota and a guy from Iowa slash Missouri get into public land hunting you go first uh, <laughs> uh i mean really like i grew up waterfowl hunting like that's all i did from age we upland bird hunted until i was about nine maybe mm -hmm. ten and then we started duck hunting and did nothing but duck hunt f until i was till i moved to iowa for the big you know for the midwest whitetail internship so mm -hmm. uh we hunted you know kind of a mixture of public and private land knew a few landowners that during the best parts of the migration they had you know like the quintessential mallard slough that you could go back into and you know it's like cow pasture and then on this cattail slough and then you just watch thousands of mallards come bombing in but it wasn't until i moved it wasn't until i got out west that i really realized like how much access there was to just endless acres of public land mm -hmm. so i mean my like experience was like admittedly i had no idea took it for granted public land private land whatever growing up and then just um yeah moving west and seeing what everything has to offer out here just uh, kind of blew me away yeah yeah and so you decided to build a school bus decided to build drive a school around, bus. Well, drive around the country and promote pu the public land school bus and yeah, donate I mean, you you donate to you sell uh, sam that's why you're still living in a school bus all of his <laughs> profits he donates to non to non-profits yeah. <laughs> you become the non-profit I, I know i give it all away <laughs> I mean, wasn't it Saturday I, or Friday? Friday I, night. Yep. I saw you gave a check to RMEF for $5,000 from yeah. your t-shirt sales. Yeah, we've, uh, we've been saving up um, for them like over the course of uh, the last six months about um, in order to make a donation of that size to help with that Falls Creek project. Uh -huh. So, <clears throat> wow. um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> so it was really like, kind of what inspired me to turn the bus into a billboard was um it was one of your videos helped a lot actually when you did uh -oh. when you did that whole video voiceover video for the talking about land transfer and uh, what that meant and right. basically like i um, i have a master's in business so i think of everything in like marketing yeah. um and uh so basically the it was federal government was marketing and packaging this really cool like putting a really nice bow on this whole thing as a state's rights issue right. and so when you broke it all down and helped everyone understand that it's just basically a fast track to losing all of this land yeah something just stuck in me and i just couldn't get over it i was like well somebody's got to speak up about this and like <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I might as well be, be one voice you know uh, i mean even uh, if it doesn't go anywhere 
but well, yeah, you know. you've you've went a lot of places with it, both figuratively and literally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no Cover, covered some miles over the past few years. How many miles do you think you put on the bus? At, at what three miles again? Yeah, it's a little three, better three, than that. Depends on the wind. So I was, <laughs> I was just it telling. Seriously, does yeah. Road in this thing, yeah. And it's it's a hot box, man. In the yeah. summertime. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got to be a hard ass to drive this bus. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I I know that because growing up in northern Minnesota, when the schools would auction off the Bluebird school, mm-hmm. I mean Bluebird was the brand. It was yeah. like Cadillac of the buses. Is yours a Bluebird? Sure is. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Everybody converted them into campers. It was crazy. So when yeah. you started doing that, I showed it to my wife and she's like, is that somebody you know from Big Falls, the town <laughs> I grew up in? I'm like, no, I just met this guy. Some people introduced me to him. So I'm sure people from the upper Midwest, everyone had a school bus parked mm-hmm. out back with a drop. You, had, you needed about a 25 inch drop down hitch to put your <laughs> right. lun, 16 foot lund on the back. Yeah. You couldn't even see it back there with the mirrors. Mm-hmm. And I say this from experience. Can I tell her really quick? Yes, you can. So my mom has six brothers. And they're from uh, 18 years older than me to my age. Okay. So her uncle Elton, who's recently passed from brain cancer, anyhow, he had a school bus and he had his 16 foot lawn with his 30 horse Evinrude on the back. His next younger brother, Mike, uh, they go up to Canada and uh, they're... East of Fort Francis, Ontario, if you cross that International Falls, you go east, and there's a minnow station out there. Well, the, your bus doesn't have power steering, does it? Uh, it does. Oh, I'm, oh yeah, I'm, well, no, I'm living the dream. Town. Oh, yeah. man. So, Elts bus didn't have power steering. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how many how many gears does the gears have? So, it's a, it's an automatic transmission. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you are uptown, yeah, man. Yeah. It's a 93, you know. It's a, <laughs> oh, so, well, this was in 1982. So, this one had been retired so yeah. it was probably a 68 school bus yeah. something oh, yeah. like that yeah. anyhow there there's these rows of how you drive into the uh gas lines and there's a winnebago in front and it breaks down so mike's got to back out of there this school bus with no power steering well, he, a lot of people don't know what a phone booth is these days, but anyhow, there was <laughs> there was a Canadian Bell phone booth back mm-hmm. there, and Mike's got it hijacked and or jackknife, not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has kind of hijacked the bus. But Mike's a bad driver anytime. But uh, I mean, if you gave him the best vehicle, he's a bad driver. But now he's got the the boat backed up where like an inch from the the. Canada Bell mm-hmm. phone booth, and he can't go f- forward because of the Winnebago, and so he yells at everyone, "Get in the bus!" And he get turns the wheel the other way, and he just gives it hell, and he goes right through the lilac hedge. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you've ever seen Northern Minnesota, no one puts up a fence; they grow a lilac That's hedge. Right. That's yeah. kind yeah. of the property boundary. Yeah, goes through there, <laughs> and as he goes through the the boat. Kind of, I wrote a story about this, and everyone who reads it, it just laughs their butt off. Anyhow, uh, this is the abbreviated version. The boat, uh, when the lilacs spring back, the boat is up higher. It's completely <laughs> off the ground. And he drives through these people's lawns, takes out their clothesline and everything else. He had enough. 
But when you're driving a school bus, you know, you you got to be thinking ahead. Yeah. You, you, oh, no. You there's a lot. Get... In every moment, there's a lot of planning that has to go in. You know? <laughs> yeah, because you pull into the wrong gas station and you're just going to have a bad time. Like, yeah, that happened to us when we were going in that <clears throat> campground in Arkansas. I whipped in yeah. there in my little Smurf, you know. Yeah. This thing's the size of a golf cart. And I'm I texting Sam the address and I call him and I'm like, he should be coming up the road with this thing anytime. You know, and then I can hear it coming, you know. <laughs> And he's on the phone. He's like, I can't, I can't make that turn. I've got to go way down and turn around and come back. He's like, the only way I can get in there is if I'm coming from the north. He's like, I can't, I can't cross traffic like that in that little lane. And granted, he has the bus and he's pulling, you know, pulling side by side and yeah. everything behind it. Too, yeah. so. How many miles do you think you put on that thing? So I have put... Uh, so I want to remind people that most of my miles is like I start in one spot and mm -hmm. I drive to the next spot and then mm -hmm. I park and set up yeah. for 10 days or whatever. Right. So I have driven, I have uh, 25,000 miles I put on the bus in the last two years. So. And that's not like riding in a fancy uh, SUV uh, Escalade or something. This is like riding a tractor for 25,000 yeah, so miles. I've, I've described it several times now as like driving an 18,000-pound microwave that's running. <laughs> <laughs> so, And part of the reason I say that is because when I'm going up a hill, mm -hmm. right, the engine starts to heat up. Mm. And so I have to take, I, there's a valve that I can open up with the, the spigot handles broken off, but I just pick it up <laughs> off the side panel and I reach, I'm driving and I reach down there and I open up this valve. Um, and so then it pulls coolant that runs coolant through a longer line. And so it cools, cools the engine it down. down. But what that does is it forces air out from underneath this side panel. Pulls so it's like 180 warmer. degree heat just blowing on my calves. So like, I was like, yeah. my, my calves at this point are two, like two really good roasts. They've yeah. just been cooked for the last two years. Yeah. Hey man, gotta make it work. That's right. Yeah. Gotta make it work. Yeah. And uh, the prime the prime guys, uh, prime archery guys, a couple mm -hmm. of them were riding with me on the way from Park City to uh, Big Sky. And they were laughing because my temp gauge is broken, so my it actually reads hotter than it's running. Mm -hmm. And so when it start when I start to go up a hill, temp starts to go up, and then my uh, a light comes on and says check gauges, and then it starts beeping at me. So it's just this like beep beep beep, and it I, drives me nuts, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I figured out that it, you can hit it <laughs> if you hit the dash in a certain spot, you can shut that light off and turn the beeper <laughs> off. So we're driving, we're driving, we start going up the hill and I just like smack the top of the dash and the light goes off and the beeping quits and I just turned and smiled and they were like, this, you know, they lost it, you know? Yeah. And then every time from there on, I could like eat, if you like kind of punch the front of it, sometimes it'll go off or if you tap the side the right way, you know, it resets the gauge. And Once they get to a certain age, you know, they develop yeah. personality. <laughs> That's right. Old vehicles. Yeah. They not, do. not that you guys, maybe you still remember, but we used to have an old great big CRT kind of TV. You had to go up there and tap it a yep. little bit to get the Winnipeg channel oh, to yeah. come in. Oh, yeah, do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So when yeah. you're saying that, it reminded me of that old mm -hmm. RCA that... My parents bought one. We got a TV when I was six or seven, I think, something like that. It always reminded me of the Fonz when he goes up and smacks the jukebox. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. song comes on. So <laughs> for those younger, the Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli <laughs> from Happy Days. Yep. Uh, you got to go. I'm sure it's on YouTube oh, or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. The Fonz. Man. Fonz. Henry Winkler. I don't know. 
Yeah. You, you, you're going way back. I know. Sam, for Sorry. being yeah. only, what, 31 or <laughs> mm-hmm. 32? Yeah, he's aware yeah. of the classic. Old soul, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> Happy Days was on in the late 70s and mm-hmm. early 80s. And then when I was a kid, they had all the reruns on oh, all the time. So, okay. Yeah. I'm all pretty right. sure I caught the whole series. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Huh. So, Aaron, you don't have a school bus. No. I just have a really shitty old car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, many mi- how many miles does it have? 252,000. What what is it? It's a blue Ford Focus. <laughs> I hear about this a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. been on a couple of t-shirts actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of times when I say that I I bring your name up or something, they're like is, does he really drive that car or is that just part of his shtick? I'm like, no. I don't know. I think that's what he drives. No, my my dad split a car with me when I was 16, it's Oldsmobile Alero, and uh, I drove it around for a few years, and I eventually blew it up. And since it was partially his car, and by this time, by the time it blew up, I had bought myself a truck as well. Okay. You know, I was working at the local grocery store and saved up some money to buy a hunting truck. Well, I was driving his his and my Oldsmobile Alero around, and I blew it up, <laughs> and uh, he said, well... I'm going to buy another car. He's like, you're going to buy it with me, but I'm going to decide which car we're going to get. <laughs> and he said, and I'm going to the salvage yard to buy the next one. <laughs> and he's like, the only thing you can decide is what, what type you want. You want like an SUV, you want a car or what? And we weren't going to spend more than $4,000 on this thing. It was going to be less. Yeah. So I was like, I want a little car. I got a truck. I want a little gas getter. And he's like, okay, I'm going to surprise you. And he rolled up in this damn thing. And ever since then, I've been driving it. And So I haven't, yeah. <clears throat> I haven't seen the Smurf since 2011. And mm-hmm. uh, so I left uh, basically Fargo um, with the bus and mm-hmm. drove, uh, took a three-day trip, made it down to Columbia, Missouri, where, and to meet up with War before we started our turkey tour this spring. Mm-hmm. And I roll in and we go out and hop in the Smurf. And, and uh, it's... Um, deteriorated a little bit since 2011. <laughs> yeah. But we yep. get in and it's pretty messy. And I go, haven't cleaned this thing for a while, huh? And he goes, not once. <laughs> <laughs> never been to a car wash. Never, never. never one time. <laughs> no. And I've, I've only had it 11 years. Yeah. Only. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I drive it everywhere. Yep. It's got, only has one window that works. The uh, <laughs> driver's door you doesn't can't. shut all the way because I got backed into by a utilities guy in Albia once. Ooh. So like the door kind of bends out. And in the winter, if you the exterior handle on the driver's side doesn't work. So you can't shut the driver's door all the way <laughs> when you get out. Yeah, only when you get out. When you're in there, you're fine. When you're in there, the, in, the interior latch still works. Hmm. So you can get out, but you can't get in. So you can't shut that door, otherwise you're pretty much screwed, especially if you don't have the keys with you. So the door's cracked all the time, even in the winter, and I left on a hunt. I was I was in Arizona oh, with you guys. with us? Yeah, okay. and it snowed a bunch back home. So I got back home, and, and there was like a foot of snow on the ground. And I looked in the Smurf, and right in the driver's seat, there there's 18 inches of snow piled up. And it been coming in. So I just opened the door and brushed it out and fired her up and took it home. Yeah. Had to, you got to climb. Th- if you accidentally shut the door, that's see, that's why nobody borrows it. Yeah. 
is because if they borrow it, it's like, okay, here's the list of things that you must do in order to get back wherever you're going, get back from wherever you're going. Yep. You know, you know, you guys are not painting a picture of financial prosperity that's going to hey, result well, in a lot of listeners saying, we oh, talking I, I want to go do that. The public lands mission and, you know, that's, oh. I think we're all kind of on that same boat and Yeah. When you prioritize that mission above everything else, including mm-hmm. making money, you're gonna, and gonna you're, you're gonna drive a Smurf to yeah. to four hundred thousand miles. I, oh man, I hope I'm yeah. trying to get to three hundred right now. It's in the shop. Uh, my buddy Jim's putting a wheel bearing in the left rear. Yeah. So you just uh, can't let Jake borrow it for too long anymore. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's not his fault no, either I'm, I'm, because I he know. didn't realize that you got to rotate the tires like every 3,000 miles because the suspension and the camber's all worn out <laughs> mm-hmm. and like they cup real bad on the inside. So you got to rotate them constantly. Otherwise, you're only going to get like 8,000 miles out of the new tire. Brand new Michelin tire gets yeah. 8,000 miles. Luckily, it's a size of a golf cart. So replacing mm-hmm. tires on this thing, you can get you know, yeah. 80 bucks for two of them. Yeah, you stop ones. at the Piggly Wiggly and they have them on the shelf in there that yep. fit that size probably. Yeah. <laughs> so. so Iowa and Missouri, how did you get into public land hunting, Aaron? I uh, grew up hunting public land and private land for whitetails and turkey um, in northeast Missouri. Like my whole family is deeply rooted in hunting. My mm. uncles, my dad, my dad's best friends. Like I was in deer camp growing up constantly um that was just the lifestyle mm-hmm. out there i mean we're from paris missouri it's like 900 people there and that's pretty much all you do i mean you've rabbit hunt you've hunt other types of small game bird hunt deer hunt turkey hunt so growing up we hunted a fair amount of public and private because we have access to public land right there um pretty close the a good amount of it mark twain lake and uh yeah, eventually I started to lose access to properties that I had permission to hunt. Mm-hmm. And like I, I've, I've seen this happen firsthand over time. And this is why I, similar to Sam, like your, your mission and you're basically you talking about access and how important it is to the future of hunting. I've seen that issue happen firsthand throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Like we had properties that we hunted on, the property that I harvested my first buck with a bow on, um, and then my uncles hunted clear back into the 70s, we've recently lost in the last 10 years, you know, and... Because someone sold it or it got leased variety or somebody, or it, whatever yeah, it might be. I mean, it's leased now, but that's one of many reasons, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, basically, when I was a kid, there was more people hunting locally, and there was more places to go. Yeah. And now... There's fewer people hunting locally and there's less places to go. And I'm like, and like, that's all me and my local buddies ever complained about as we got older. It's like, well, where are we going to go? You know, all we had was public land eventually. Mm -hmm. So we, we made that work and it was awesome. You know, I mean, we, it was, it was great. We all had this sort of stigma about it. Like, oh, you don't want to go out there with all those people and all that stuff. Well, Mm -hmm. once we started doing that when we were kids, it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. You just adapt and, you know, learn to deal with it. But then once... I got into the hunting industry a little bit. I could see after talking to people from kind of all over the country that everybody's going through that. Not just us in little town, Paris, Missouri. Right. But I was talking to people in Pennsylvania and in Connecticut and in Alabama that were saying like, yeah, we just don't have the 
the hunting anymore. We don't have the places to go. Yeah. So that's kind of how we started the, mm-hmm. the hunting public. I mean, that, that was the founding mission. It's like, hey, we got to show people that you can go out on public land. You can have a good experience because that's all, that's all the next generation of hunters may have right. if we continue down this path. I mean, it's not just, I'm not just blaming people that lease no, or nothing like it's that. It's development. It's a, it's yes, a, it's urbanization. Yeah. It's all, yeah. all these different factors. And, we're, yeah. and as everything, um, hunting is going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to adapt to it. So we figured that we might as well show people that you can do it on public land. And another big part of it, and my friend Scott Vance, who used to work for the National Wild Turkey Federation, mm-hmm. Um, he was their VP of hunting heritage. He's the CEO of Union Sportsman's Alliance now. Okay. But he's a mentor of mine. And he used to talk to me about the statistics for hunter recruitment. Yep. And they did a lot of heavy research back in the day in NWTF about why we were losing participation and yep. why we weren't regenerating new hunters. And from all of our conversations that we had over the years, one of the number one reasons is the loss of the social aspect of hunting, especially in like whitetail hunting. Yeah. You, you know, look, watch whitetail hunting culture in like the last 20 years. It's just become sort of this solo mm-hmm. thing where it's, it's driven by antlers and age of bucks. It's becoming more and more competitive all the time. Mm. And that, that's not, you know, inclusive Right. That's exclusive. exclusive. Yeah. And so we wanted to get back to showing people the whole deer camp atmosphere. Cause that's, that's where our mind went. It's like, well, when was the most fun you had when you were hunting? It was when we were a kid at deer camp. Yeah. Like, why the hell would we just do that again? Yeah. And like show people <laughs> how much fun you can have doing that. <laughs> and you've been doing a great job at that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I think it's not hard to have fun. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, and, and you guys have a great time with it. But like, I mean, I think just the fact that, you know, even if it's just two of you in the tree, like when you have a successful hunt, yep. the entire crew is there to help at the end and talk, share the whole story, share the whole experience in the field. It's not like you're, you know, two of you are just bringing that buck back to camp and then talking about it. Like the whole, it's like families and, you know, like everyone's out there looking for the deer or, you know, whatever it might be and helping haul it out. And it's, uh, it's been really, it's really cool to watch all that stuff. When did you guys start, Aaron? Was it 17 or 16? Yeah. September of 17. Yeah. Okay. I still remember to this day, I I'm driving down the interstate 80, just outside of Elko, Nevada. And my phone rings and it's you. Yeah. And Michael, (laughs) who works for us, knows both you guys. And that's really how I got to know you guys real well. Uh, I think Michael had given you my information. And you're talking to me that you have this idea, but I'm not sure why you felt calling me was worth (laughs) anything. Uh, But I remember after the call, I'm like, man, as, as lucky as we've been to leverage the public land message in Western hunting, our audience, just in terms of demographics of number of hunters, is a fraction of what the whitetail world is. And I'm thinking, man, if someone pulls this off in the whitetail world, it is going to be really, mm-hmm. really popular. And uh, you guys have done it. Oh, we're trying. We're, <laughs> it's a, like, we've got some pretty high goals in the next 20 years, but ultimately that's the... And I think we all share the same goal here. You know, it's not just ours. Ultimately, 
we're trying to shape hunting culture in a positive direction, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, for the rest of our lives and into the next generation. Like that's what gets me up every day yeah. is that's the direction we want to go. And I feel like if you're, if you're not contributing to that in a positive way, you need to rethink what you're doing. If you're lucky enough, that's kind of the way we thought about it. If, if you're lucky enough to be in outdoor media and love hunting like we do, yeah. then you better be doing right by the people that are watching it. You better mm-hmm. be making content for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, be, yeah. It's, and, and, you, and it doesn't become a job at that point. Right. You know? And you guys have proven my model works to produce a lot of media and make no money. <laughs> <laughs> people ask me, like, up, you know, the three of us were up at Big Sky this weekend uh, mm-hmm. in Big Sky, Montana, Total Archery Challenge. And a lot of people will say, well, it must be nice to make a lot of money hunting all the time. I'm like, well, there's a reason I still do tax returns. <laughs> yeah, you got to give something up. You know, in this business you do. That's what I tell a lot of folks, like, because you get that question all the time. It's, like, how do we do what you guys do? Or how do we get a job in the hunting industry? Well, like, I'll be honest with you. It depends on what your goals are. Like my goal was to do the only thing that I was ever good at and to, to just do the only thing that I really ever enjoyed, mm-hmm. like was hunt. I wasn't motivated by money, yeah. obviously. I mean, you look at that, we're talking about the Smurf over here. I mean, yeah, it's $500 car. So, and... That's it. That's kind of the sacrifice that we've made anyway. Mm-hmm. It's like we get to do what we love all the time, every day. We get to hunt all over the place in all these cool public areas and get to share it with people, family, and friends. But, you know, yeah. we're not going to get that brand new speedboat anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's just I, part I'm, of it. My advice to anyone who asks that same question is don't quit your day job. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> if, if, or be in a unique situation where you, you don't need the money. Uh, but I've not met any people yet who didn't need some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, may, maybe there's a way out around yeah. needing the money, <laughs> yeah, but I, mean, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. You uh, know, and for, like, for what I do, like, uh, like the bus is, you know, it's a good tool to create awareness about all the public land stuff. But like my main source of income is still photography. Yeah, like I've been right. to do it, you know, I was, uh, started freelance photography back in 2011, basically was kind of the start of it, but really 2000, late 2012. And, uh, I was beyond broke for like almost three years until I caught a break and got, you know, hired for the right job. And then just started to create the network to build up uh, enough clientele where I was shooting enough photos to make some money. And then I, spent all of it on building the school bus out <laughs> around the country. But um, I think it's important for people to realize that uh, the three of us here have a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah. Like we're not just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you just... You, um, you, anyone who thinks it's just, oh, I'm going to go hunt and someone's going to mm-hmm. film it and I'm going to sit around and count the money mm-hmm. has no idea how how many hours a day you guys and all of us are working for every little bit. It's yeah. just this, you show up every day and here's the plan. And I, I got to just keep working the plan day by day by day. And every once in a while, you kind of pull your head up and look around like, all right, we've made a little progress. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's, but, you know, and I like, none of us are complaining about what we do. No, no. But I think, uh, you know, for people, just for people trying to get expectations right. if you're getting into it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I think it's, uh, yeah, it's important to manage those expectations. Yeah, so. you got to be creative about it. I mean, we mm-hmm. have a variety of different revenue streams, none of which are particularly large, but <laughs> it's, uh, we do have a variety right. of and that's what it takes. income streams. Yep. And that's why we're able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were just, if we were just making money from one thing, from YouTube, for example, right. we wouldn't yeah. be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, for me anyhow, and I, I say this all the time, and every once in a while I get flack over it, but at 32 years in the CPA world and then simultaneously I'm entering my 12th year doing this, I think about where else in the world could a snotty-nosed punk grow up in a little logging town of 500 people up in the northern bush of Minnesota and end up with a life like I have right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Only in America could you sit down somewhere and scratch out an idea and somehow make it work. Yeah. And like both you said, I, I didn't do this. There's nothing in our why about making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Don't don't get me wrong. If I make some money at this, I'm going to be, my wife's going to be really happy. Right. Because <laughs> every year, her and I sit down and kind of have the state of the union mm-hmm. meeting. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the good part is I think 2014 was the last time we had to infuse any cash into here. Uh, but she's not got any of it back either. So yeah. <laughs> she, she reminds me, you know, if we would have put this in our portfolio, here's what that would have grown to. Uh, or if she, her other thing is, <laughs> look, you're a CPA. Would you have advised your client to keep doing this? Yeah. That, that's the one where she knows she gets me. <laughs> yeah. But the point of it is I get up every day, and I think you just said it, Aaron. Every day I get up, I'm excited mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. do what we do. Yeah. And are we making a difference, you know, in the collective world of outdoor media? I hope we are. I, um, however small that might be. Uh, and as you were talking, I'd be interested, Sam, in your background in South Dakota, have you seen loss of hunting places the way Aaron was describing? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in South Dakota, a lot of it is, uh, so there's, there's been a couple of good things that have happened and a couple like, um, South Dakota's pheasant capital of the world, right? right? So I've seen it much more on the pheasant side of things, um, you know, where outfitters and, you know, people from out of state or whatever, they're leasing up ground for pheasant hunting and mm-hmm. good on them, you know, if you can pay for that, whatever. Right. But it used to be um, a lot more accessible just knocking on doors. And I think that's nationwide where, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, companies like real real estate companies and stuff have showed the value of a hunting property. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, whether or not you're selling it, people know that <clears throat> if somebody wants to come hunt on their land, like they there's, can put a price on right. it. There's a and that's just there. capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's the, the right. world we live in. So, yep. that, I mean, like, whatever, people can it's do It's also that. the reason that we can do what we do, right? You know, so, yep. I mean, there's two yeah. sides of it. But yeah. what we always are looking at is, from the recruitment side, is how many barriers do they have to leap over mm-hmm. to get into hunting? Like a kid can right. go to school and if he wants to play baseball in the fifth grade or t-ball or whatever it is you can usually find a way a program yep. something mm-hmm. a right. way to get them involved in that yeah with hunting it's a lot a lot different a lot different yeah. way and more hurdles yeah. yeah you have all and 
I feel like as an industry, we've created more and more of these barriers Mm -hmm. and they're getting higher and higher. And that's one reason why the recruitment is in bad shape in a lot of places. You know, and some of the good things that I've seen in in South Dakota included, they've uh, lowered the like the starting age of hunting. Mm -hmm. I think they, I'm pretty sure they eliminated the starting age, but then they have, you have, you know, obviously you have to be with a mentor mentor. up to a certain point. Um, And then uh, my mom is a state senator in South Dakota, so I get to hear all the back end of all this yeah. cool stuff that's going on <laughs> in the conserv- you know, um, the world of the game and fish parks, game right. fish and parks there. So, um, so that was cool, you know, like that was lowering one hurdle. And, um, you know, another thing that they've done in order to kind of protect the quality of the hunt for people in South Dakota is um, if you're going to be, if you want a duck hunt in South Dakota as a non-resident, yeah. uh, you have to apply for the waterfowl license. Oh, wow. So where most places it's over the counter and people mm-hmm. follow the migration, um, yeah, you got to apply every year. And, you know, most, most of the time you apply, you're going to get the tag. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that has done is it has kept a lot of ground that would have probably been leased up for, um, you know, guides and outfitters right. um, on, like for during the migration, like all that land still open because they can't guarantee that, a number of clients and yeah, uh, yeah and who's going to draw tags and or someone from out of state isn't going to pay a big lease fee because it's like, well, what if I don't draw exactly. my tag? Yep. I just obligated myself to this yep. landowner and I don't get right. to use it this year. You know, and I've been on both sides of it. So like obviously grew up in South Dakota, but now I'm a non-resident. And uh, I, uh, every year when like the survey comes out for like, oh, did you duck hunt here? Or did you, you know, big game hunt here? I, every year I say, thank you for continuing to protect like the quality of the hunt in the waterfowl space. It's the best thing, you know, that mm-hmm. South Dakota still has because then you're not fighting with people, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, well, in, in Montana here, and I can only speak for the 28 years that I've lived here, um, we we're seeing the trends that you guys mentioned. Another thing we're seeing out here in the West is it's almost as if you aren't somebody in the upper echelon of billionaires mm-hmm. if you don't own a huge ranch. And those people have very high tolerance for wildlife, which on that side is good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they have zero tolerance for hunting mm-hmm. or hunt or just anyone on their property. So you end up with these sanctuaries where all these deer and elk end up on properties that just they're not they're not gonna let anyone hunt. Mm-hmm. I bought this forty thousand acres and it's mine and you, that's that. And so there's forty thousand yeah. acres that you know, may, maybe even the former owner only let family and friends or the guy who comes out and fixes his tractor or whatever, that was still maybe 12, 15, 20 people who were hunting his place. Mm-hmm. Well, now they've lost that. Yeah. And they're on the public land. And this is happening so many places that the public land is feeling more and more crowded yep. because of what we've lost for access on a lot of the private lands. And to, to your point, Aaron, the... When we built our business plan in 2008, uh, there's a study from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, and it then got updated in 2010 or 11, I believe, and it surveyed, I don't know how many people, a huge number of what was the reason you either quit hunting or you didn't hunt as much as you previously did, or you came from a hunting culture or family or, or environment, but you did not hunt. The number one, there was a multitude of reasons, mm-hmm. but for every one of those groups in both the, the original survey and the updated survey, access, a place to hunt was the number one mm-hmm. reason for 
people not doing that. And I get a lot of heat out West because people are, well, I'm not seeing less people. Right. And right. They, they aren't because the public lands are becoming, like you said, Aaron, the, the place where it, oh, I mean, people have to go. We're right. trying to protect them from, you know, transfer and stuff out here. We're not mm-hmm. adding more. Right, right. In many yeah. cases. And like, that's what needs to be happen, or that's what needs to happen long term. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I guess that's what I'm thinking about, like 30 years down the road. Like, yes, I want to do everything that we can to protect what we've got right now and to show people you can still have positive experiences out there. But I would like for us as a hunting community to reach a little higher at some point mm-hmm. than that even. And like, let's get to a point where we can come up with more of these land access programs where we can add areas because I'm in Iowa and it is like bottom of the barrel as far as amount of public land there is. Yeah. And if you go to the local high school there in Albia where I'm from, you're not going to see very many hunters. And those are the people that live there. And this is the whitetail capital of the world, quote unquote. Right. Not many people. So a lot of the kids aren't into hunting? No. In rural... Mm-hmm. Hunter wow. recruitment has went down like, and I could be wrong on this, but I think last I checked it went down like every year for the last seven years in Iowa. Wow. <laughs> that's not good. No, it's yeah, not. It's that's... not. And that's, they, they have to have a place to go. And if you're a, a landowner, the way that I think about this, because we are landowners as well in Missouri, mm-hmm. my grandpa owned, a, he bought a farm in the seventies that mm-hmm. my dad lives on now. It's a little over a hundred acres. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at this is it's like, if you love to deer hunt and you've got deer on your property, for example, go out and harvest your deer, whatever, but don't get to the point where you're so greedy about the deer that you try to shelter them from everybody else. Yeah. Like, I'm, let a kid go out there every once in a while. I get the, the you know, the laws and things, like in the, the risk with Liability, liability, concerns. and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a deer, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah if you have, <laughs> if you're a whitetail hunter and you have five thousand acres all to yourself, mm-hmm. you have more than enough deer to hunt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Your cup yeah. runneth over, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And yes, I'm proud of you that you've got that land. That's what you wanted to get, or, or whatever, and you want to harvest a mature buck. I get it, but you know, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to reciprocate yeah. and yeah. give back to the community that you live in in some way, shape, or form, because that's really it. I mean, a lot of those kids, they don't, there's no such thing as door knocking anymore. Right. You know, and a 14-year-old kid can't go up to a farmer and ask them to go deer hunting because it's yeah, it's money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, huh. they yeah. can go to public land. Right. If they can find a way to get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's some cool things happening. Uh, and I think all three of us here probably have thought about this time and time again, the lofty goals of figuring out ways to add more public yeah. land, you know, and all three of us today have a meeting set separate times with, with <laughs> Onyx Maps. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that, I mean, Onyx Maps is doing really cool things where they've right. been able to see how much landlocked property there is that exists. And yeah. now they're working with conservation organizations to help figure out ways to add easements to those lands. So there's, you know, step one. And then there's several states in the, kind of right in the middle of the country. And then uh, even some in Montana, but uh, increasing uh, those 
basically public access to private land. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in Montana, it's the block management land. Mm -hmm. North Dakota, they have the PLOTS program, which is public access. Uh, I don't even know what it stands for now. (laughs) Anyway, PLOTS program, you know, um, South Dakota is... Public lands open to sports. There it is. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Took me a while. A lot of states are doing that. Yeah. And it's good. Yep. And, uh, and, um, their state's doing that. So I think like a couple of the next frontiers are one, figuring out ways to add way more easements to all of these landlocked pieces that we already own or should be open. Yeah. And uh, and then um, adding access to private land. And I think as more and more states kind of grab on, gravitate towards that, I think we'll see a shift in um, hunter recruitment, I would hope anyway, because then you don't have to travel an hour to go hunt you know, like a state park or a state forest or whatever, you can go right down the road and get onto a piece of ground. But, and I think, you know, the hunting public has done a good job of showing that it really doesn't matter where you live in the country. Like if you do a little research, there's going to be something that's not that far away. And that is the advantage of whitetail hunting. Like to to whitetail hunt effectively, you don't need a ton of land to do it on. You can do it on some relatively small public Mm -hmm. areas. And most folks have those locally at their disposal somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, well, not at their disposal, but yeah, they have, access the, they it. have access to yeah. them. Um, so they just like, to your point, they just have to find them and then go out there and set realistic expectations. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and maybe down the road, we figure out ways where, you know, crowdsourcing has become such a big thing. Maybe we figure out ways to work together, not only with the hunting community, but the fishing community and the outdoors community and figure out ways to um, crowdsource, you know, purchasing properties that are along the edge of existing public lands or new public lands or whatever, and be able to turn that back over so everybody, everybody can use it. So Yeah. 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 The, one, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, their most recent data that they put out for, I think it's 418. It's an interesting map of where there's hunting numbers are stable and where hunting numbers are falling off the map. In the Western and Rocky Mountain states, hunting numbers are stable or slightly increasing. Mm -hmm. The West Coast states, they're dropping. The Midwest, the Northeast are just going, I mean... Just falling off. Yeah, and and the total numbers, the the slight increases you're seeing in uh, resident license sales in the West you know, the number of hunters is so small relative to Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, that when those states are having five, eight percent drops over a five-year period, the the total number of hunters is just declining. And to the people in the West, it may not feel that way. Whereas people in the Midwest might, or the East might be like... They don't, a lot of them don't feel that way either, you know, and that's hmm. why discussing these numbers is such a big deal. I just... And I don't blame folks for thinking like that. I mean, you're in control of your life, you know, mm-hmm. and you 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 have your perspective. Everybody does. Right. And they're going out to their same public area that they've been hunting for years and they're still seeing people, you know, mm-hmm. and now they're seeing even more people because we're bringing, you know, more overall attention to public lands. So there's more people that are going and hunting public mm-hmm. lands. So they would disagree with me on a lot of points <laughs> that I make about like they're, the hunter for numbers sure. are dropping. They're like, no, not, not on my spot, you know, right. not out here. And like, yeah, yes, they are. If you look at the overall pie. Yeah. And I don't think everybody understands what that means in 15, 20 years. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you lose your foothold 
with the numbers that we have, you don't have a voice when it comes right. to policy. Yeah. Right. Zero. And I was, I was recently talking about some like streaming apps and that sort of thing. Cause in outdoor world, we, um, a lot of video is going digital, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we all yep. have mm-hmm. all our stuff is digital media, but a lot of it is going to these streaming platforms and some of them are custom built, you know, through the outdoor industry. And they do that. And they're, one of their main reasons is because they're afraid that YouTube is going to censor all of the hunting content right. or Instagram is going to censor all the hunting content. Cause it does happen it Sure, does, yeah. in Facebook. It's the same thing. But my, I guess my argument to them is like, guys, I understand that you want to have a boat for us to float in should, should the Titanic sink. Yeah. But if it does, and we lose access to these main communication platforms in society, we're going to be in a bad way. We're screwed. Yeah. 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 I mean, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's going to listen to us on our little deer hunting video right. app over here. Yeah. Like, yes, our, <laughs> our existing group can still watch deer hunting videos there. Yeah. But it's but, way too small. Yeah, it's way too small. We just become a special interest group that's real tiny at that point. Like if we're kicked off of these major communication platforms, for better or worse, you know, social media has obviously got a lot of disadvantages (laughs) to it. But that's how the world runs now. Mm -hmm. That's how we communicate. No, I I think for us to have relevance, and this is just from my time of going to Washington, D.C. and places and having conversations with elected officials and policymakers. If you don't have some critical mass, your relevance, there's a, there's a direct correlation to what percent of society you represent, whether it's in your state or nationally, and how much attention you can get from others who are making the policy. They may mm-hmm. not come from your background. They may not even understand how hunting works, how conservation is funded. But if you can show up and say, you know, I represent 225,000 members of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they're like, ooh. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, I don't get I better many, listen to you. Yeah. That's I don't what get many think. people who come in here who represent a group of almost a quarter million people. Now, if you show up and say, you know, we used to have 225,000. We're down to about 80,000 now. They're like, hmm, yeah, leave me your card. I, I got a meeting to go to. <laughs> right. And... You just become less of a priority yeah. to them. And I think the same with these platforms you're talking about, Aaron. I, 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 I would hate to see hunters almost feel like we got to circle the wagons so tightly that we almost fulfill the prophecy mm-hmm. that we end up getting booted from platforms. Yeah. And part of that goes back to messaging. You know, yeah. You talk to anybody <laughs> in the hunting space, just about, and whether they're producing it or whether they're consuming it, how many people criticize what the message of hunting is? Yeah. Well, part of the, the problem, if we want acceptance and the access to big platforms that are searchable, that are, you know, Google and YouTube are the two largest search engines in the world by so far, it's not even worth comparing the others. If if we think our messages are all screwed up and everyone says that, then what are we doing about that? Yeah. Because if we keep trying to have a screwed up message, it goes on those platforms. 
That's a big part of why a lot of those platforms might censor something. Right. Mm -hmm. When we talk about food, never get any. Exactly. I, I guess one time on Instagram, I was in Alaska boning out a bear. And looking at the image, yeah, maybe I could have picked a, right. a little bit better image. And there I am with a knife. And But it was about prepping this wild harvest to something I'm going to use mm-hmm. at the table. And so, you know, it was sensitive content. Actually, for me anymore, if something on, on Instagram has the little cross through it that says yeah. it's sensitive way more, more people look exactly. at it. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I purposefully look at everything <laughs> yeah. that says yeah. sensitive yep. content because I want to see yep. what it is that was supposedly yeah. so sensitive. It was like the uh, the photo that I shot of Rogan holding that big moose yeah. quarter over mm-hmm. his shoulder. Um, I think I posted it last spring. It was like it had been three years since that magazine cover had come out. I was like, yeah, it's just fun to look back and see all this. And I reposted that photo, and it almost immediately got censored. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, by far and away the most looked at and most engagement on a photo I had ever posted. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we need to we need to learn how to communicate better in the future, mm-hmm. just as a culture and uh, society is of hunters, because that's really what it's about. It's and. It, you need to also understand the other side's perspective. And I feel like a lot of folks don't do that yeah. well, yeah. you know, and remember you just said Google, YouTube, monstrous platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. These are global platforms. Yeah. Like they rate, they have to set policy. And I don't, I'm not saying that I agree with everything they do. I disagree yeah. with them on a daily basis. They drive me nuts. <laughs> yeah, But me too. they, on the flip side of the coin, they have to set policy for not only us, but for people in China or India or right. religions in Russia or wherever it is, you right. know, I mean, they have to, they have to monitor this thing on a global sense. Yeah. So if something pops up like that, that gets flagged, it's not because Instagram hates you as a hunter. <laughs> right. It's uh, probably because it, it got flagged in one of their weird mm-hmm, you know, something. crazy algorithms where they've, they've got a policy infringement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just got to keep in mind, like we're communicating to the entire world when we post that stuff on there. Right. Not so much. I mean, obviously our friends and those that, that know us in our group, but it's the whole world. And that's that, like, that's why it's such a big deal. Like YouTube and Google on the flip side, every new kid that comes into hunting gets on their phone and says how to buy a bow, how to shoot a deer, how to clean a deer. And they do it on Google. (laughs) (laughs) And if you don't have hunting on Google and YouTube, where are they? Yeah. Where do you find all that? (laughs) I I get people, you guys probably get it too, say, I'm not watching YouTube. I don't, don't, I'm not going to support Google. I'm not going to support Amazon. I'm like, well, that's fine. You know, knock yourself out. But I want to reach millions and millions of hunters who are out there. And they don't have a TV package. They, yeah, they're consuming this digitally, whether it's on a phone, a desktop, a smart TV, whatever. Yeah. I want to reach them. And until some supposed savior comes and builds <laughs> the next Google <laughs> yeah. and is sitting on $100 billion of cash in their on their balance sheet, well, let me know when that happens, but I don't see it happening <laughs> anytime soon. Yeah. So It's not. Uh, so you guys do a lot of turkey hunting. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I'm going to have to come turkey hunting with you guys someday and take lessons because I'm the world's worst turkey hunter. 
You you could if you searched all of North America, you might be able to find someone who's a worse turkey hunter than me, but it's unlikely. <laughs> I think I would have the traveling failure. Have you trophy. ever hunted with my dad? <laughs> I, I've not, Aaron. I, I, I have not. But I've shot two turkeys in my life. One of them was after seven days of calling uh, in eastern Montana. Uh, it was the last morning. I'd given up, and I'm walking up. I'd called towards this turkey, and he didn't show up, so I start walking up the trail, and he and I meet at the crest of the knob, and I poleaxed him. He, he took <laughs> off. He started running, and I put a lead Ooh. on him and just rolled him. Nice. And then <laughs> the other one, I was deer hunting, and uh, I'm sitting in a blind, actually, as much as I hate that, and I hear this kind of thought it was raining here's turkeys crapping all over i didn't know my blind was right underneath <laughs> a roosting tree and they all come down and all i have is my 270 and they're like five six yards out in front of me i'm like all right i have a turkey tag tomorrow bringing my shotgun also yeah same thing happened and this dude comes walking by man i'd be completely flickered him just I mean, <laughs> he had no it was, it was not good so those are my two turkeys that i've harvested and uh i watch you guys go and have all this fun traveling everywhere doing all this turkey hunting and uh i that's why i leave it on our crew to marcus and michael because i well we just need to get a hunt on the books for next spring that, turkey hunting is yeah, fun man. It's so much fun it's no, it's I mean, no I, stress. Yeah. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I put some stress on it because I take it way too seriously. I mean, there were definitely but, some days this spring where I looked uh, not very astute in the turkey woods. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. You I had, missed a few birds. With your bow or with a shotgun? Shotgun. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh they're tough in places. They're so really the, tough the, the worst. The worst was I, I had a couple tags in my pocket. And these, it was one of the last days of hunting, and these two toms line up perfect. But in order to get a shot on them, I was facing one way, and I had to swing over and shoot them. They were like mm -hmm. 10 yards. Well, at 10 yards, my pattern is like shooting yes. a golf ball right. at the end of my shotgun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I missed. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, so, yeah. yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah. Huh. Shooting but, a shifty little bobbin head through the woods, it's, it's tougher than you think. And then you talk to my dad. I took him turkey hunting, and uh, uh, <laughs> this bird comes in and. Uh, he's going to walk right into the decoy and he, he goes, I'm, I'm up taking photos and he goes, can I shoot him? And I go, yeah. And I didn't even get the full word out and boom. And he just dusts this thing and I go, where'd you aim? And he goes, center mass. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> and to pick a few pellets out of that. <laughs> a little bit. But yeah. Uh, that happens. Uh, <laughs> they are tasty. Yes, they are. <clears throat> so but yeah, we got to get a turkey hunt on the books for, for next year. All right. Well, um, is it after April 15th? Yeah, that's when it starts getting good. Okay. Yeah, we hunt them for three months. Yeah. Stupid things. Really? Yeah, March, April, May. Mm-hmm. We the, quit where, right, where, at, right around the 1st of June. Where does it open in March? It opens down, down south. Yep. Oh, I suppose. Mississippi, yeah. Alabama. It opens yep. in February in Florida. February. Yeah, Yeah, February right. 25th or something like that in Florida. Yep. Wow. Osceola's down there. But I suppose after April 15th, you're chasing bears. Usually. Yeah, the bears usually. Yeah. yeah. Usually well, we can get you out on like a three-day hunt, year. you know? Yeah. That early season bear stuff, a lot of times it's too cold anyway. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And I'm no good at that either. So I'm, <laughs> I'm only a slightly better spring bear hunter than I am a spring turkey hunter. So I think I'm just so out of practice in the spring that I just, you know, good thing elk season isn't in the spring because I, I've been driving a desk too much by that mm -hmm. time. But Yeah. So as uh as guys that do what you do 
Is there any place you've either been to, because you guys have both photographed and filmed a lot, or that you want to go to that is like someday, I just, I want to go do that for, for whatever reason, whether it's the adventure, whether it's the mystique of the location or the species or anything like mm -hmm. that yet. I've always had interest in, I don't, um, I don't really have a desire to go brown bear hunting, mm -hmm. but I've wanted, I've, uh, after hearing about the Kamchatka Peninsula in mm -hmm. Russia, like yeah. just the bears and the fishing and the everything that had, like the moose and the whole thing, like I, th I would love to go on a moose hunt over on the Kamchatka. Yeah. It just seems, I don't know, just seems like Alaska's pretty wild and that seems even crazier. You know, you get on those giant helicopters and they fly in and, yeah. I mean, just getting to the location seems like a crazy adventure. So, yeah. Yeah. The guys I talked to who've done that, they mm -hmm. said there's usually two mechanics flying oh, yeah. with those Russian yeah. helicopters. You feel real is, safe. Like, hmm, how many mechanics you need to keep this thing in the air? Real-time mechanicing is not something I really want to be a part of. But. Yeah, especially on a helicopter. Yeah. But yeah. Kamchatka does have, I mean, bears and moose. It's very similar to Alaska as yeah. far as the species and yeah. stuff like that. Just as yep. wild as wild gets, mm -hmm. so... Hmm. That'd be cool. Well, you know what? Uh, I shouldn't say it on the podcast. I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. You know what helicopters run on, right? Uh, uh, it's called PFM. Pure f magic. <laughs> 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 Editor's note. Yeah. Uh, well, well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, can, you can bleep that out. Yeah, Joe, <laughs> Joe's a great editor. He'll take care of that. <clears throat> but yeah. You got anything? Is it, oh, would it be whitetail or would it be something else? No, it'd be elk. Mine's elk. mine's not nearly as exciting as Sam's, but I've I've archery hunted elk a couple of times. I've been on archery elk hunts early season when they're bugling, and that's my thing. Yeah, like that's the peak of the mountain for mm -hmm. me. I've hunted lots of things all over the country, in dozens of states. But like, if I can get on an early archery bull hunt of some kind, that's where I want to be. Yeah, and there's lots of states that I haven't hunted out here yeah. yet, so. Well, we got tags in Montana. Yeah. You're going to see me up here okay. real soon. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, real I soon. Just, just want to let you know that we got llamas. We got everything. Yeah. I mean, pretty much just show up with your bow and good to go. You can, can, you can, you can uh, it, it's so easy in Montana. You can kind of pick what day you, you just notch your tag in advance. Oh, okay. <laughs> September 12th. The yeah, BS meter's going up. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was sounding, sounding good at first. Now I can, now I can kind of see through it. No. <laughs> I know that's not true. No, for me, I'm going to do my dream hunt in September. It's since I was a little kid, I wanted to do mountain caribou and I'm finally going to do it. And good for you. Where are you going? Uh, Right on the British Columbia Yukon border, mm -hmm. but on on the British yep. Columbia side with Dustin Rowe, and I, yep. I can't really tell you where this uh, seed or why the seed got. I know when it happened. I remember reading an article in my junior high library because I couldn't afford hunting magazines, but the library had them, so mm -hmm. I'd go read them there and. Some someone wrote a story about northern British Columbia mountain caribou, and it just—I always thought, man, that would be the pinnacle if ever I could go do that. And so now that I'm going to go do it, I, my mind's already thinking about all right. If if the if dream hunt or whatever you want to call it is off the list, then what am I going to do? And 
my mind's already thinking about kind of retracing steps of what I've done mm -hmm. for the last 30 years of hunting multiple states across the West. And there's still so many cool things in the lower 48 that I want to go do that I've, yeah. I've never killed the coos deer. Yeah, uh, and, and you might never ever if you keep bow hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so what I did this year, Aaron, I applied for a rifle tag. Boom. Yeah. November, I'm going to be down there with there a rifle tag. Yeah. But the, the list of things, like there's parts of New Mexico that I see so many black bears when I'm elk hunting. I'm like, how cool would it be to come and hunt black bears, black bears in the pinions? And yeah. There's walk-in area in Kansas that I hunted three years in a row. And I haven't been back there now since the really bad drought of mm -hmm. 2011, 12, and 13. And it's like, ah, I got to get back there. And I want to go back to my home stomping grounds of northern Minnesota, even though the mm. deer numbers are really in the crapper back there. Uh, but back to your point of hunting cultures, everybody in our little town of Big Falls has a hunting shack or a hunting camp. Right. And it, they, it might only be 10 miles from town. Right. But the whole family in deer season goes and stays at the shack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, you know, oh, that's the Ferguson shack. Oh, that's the Gustafson shack. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the whatever shack. Yep. And so one of the things was is each evening you'd kind of, oh, let's all meet over at whoever's shack. And the culture of all that, I miss. So every November when it's deer season, I I call my brother and he tells me what's going on. It's like, dang it. I, yeah, I got to back there. And yep. so, it's relaxing. It's, yeah, that's what hunting is built. That's what like whitetail hunting is built on. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's what all those numbers were built on back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess if there is one little island of of where that still exists, it certainly still exists in, yep. in Wisconsin, far, far northern Minnesota. Minnesota, Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So it's those kind of things now that, you know, oh gosh, last time I had an antelope tag in Nevada, I feel like I... I almost hurried it. I want to go there and just milk it for everything and hunt the whole season. And the last day I'll shoot whatever happens to be there. Mm -hmm. just, so the multitude of things now that I'm looking forward to after I get this one out of the way is, is uh, probably uh, to some people might seem bland or rather pedestrian, but for me, I'm, I'm already excited about going back and doing those things over the counter elk in Colorado. Like mm -hmm. if yeah. you go, if you go to Western Colorado in the rifle season, then you pull into Delta or Hotchkiss or Montrose or Craig or rifle, any of those towns, every sign is welcome hunters, every restaurant, right. every bar, every gas station. And it's just, I don't know, maybe you, as you get older, maybe you have more, more of a nostalgia, uh, sentiment to you, but I just love going to those little places mm -hmm. where you, you plop down at the restaurant and then get a burger after dark, and they're like, "Get your elk," <laughs> you know. It's like this right. person doesn't even know me, but they they know I'm yeah. here hunting, and they want to talk hunting. That's mm -hmm. the same thing where we were at fly fishing yesterday. You know, yeah. up on that Madison River. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that, Ennis? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, and it's a fly shop town. Oh you yeah. Know? I mean, there's people fly, fishing the river everywhere. And it makes it tougher to get on fish. Yep. But at the same time, the culture is just so rich there with fly fishing. So you go downtown and you're talking to everybody in these fly shops and they're all jacked up about going fly fishing and you're learning stuff from this guy and you're learning about rods from this guy. And it's the whole experience. It's not yeah. just catching a fish. Right. 
Yeah. You know, that, being that is, in that culture, that's that's what gets you hooked. Yeah. The NS people are going to hate me for the fact that I let it be yeah. promoted on a podcast. They're yeah, we didn't catch like, anything. So yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, they, then they, the day before big game season opens in Montana, uh, NS hosts a hunter's festival mm-hmm. or something, and they, they yeah. got a badass chili cook-off there. And I'm a chili nut, man. I... I Every restaurant I go to, if there's chili on the menu, I'm trying it. And so I've kind of cruised down there. It's only 60 miles away just yeah. to participate in the GI part of the chili problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Might show up. But it's fun to go to those little places. I I mean, I've been to South Dakota during pheasant season, and it's a lot same of that deal. same yep. thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, you know, at its peak, uh, it was... For opening weekend, it was like sixty thousand hunters flew into the just the Sioux Falls airport. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, six, <laughs> yeah, massive, wow. massive numbers. Huh. Yeah, there's got to be a lot of local merchants who are smiling <laughs> about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you need to go turkey hunting in the southeast. Is it at like some that? point? Is yeah. it like that down there? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's what it is. An opening week of turkey season. It's like. Everybody, and it's tough. It's like the toughest turkey hunt that I've ever experienced is those states down in the southeast. But that's yeah, really. because it's it's different. You know, they do care about deer hunting down there, but when it's turkey season, everybody's if you're a hunter, hunting. everybody is turkey yeah. hunting. Huh. So well, we well, launched uh, we launched three turkey designs this spring through Public Land Tees, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, most of the time, like with all our shirt designs, you know, we'd ship to Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, you know, the West, and then. Uh, Minnesota, like, like really loves buying shirts from me, which is great. Thank you, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. But we launched these three turkey designs, and it was like Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, South Carolina, North Carolina. I mean, everything yep. went to the southeast. Huh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, if I'm already a bad turkey hunter, everyone tells me Montana turkeys are as dumb as they get. So I wouldn't, I, I, I'd be completely screwed down in the southeast from what you're telling me. Right? No, you no, just, we usually you, are when we go down there. It's still, it's still fun. You just follow Warb around for a few days and then you can talk turkey and then you'll be fine. Really? Yeah. Uh, huh. yeah. Well, all right. You guys might have talked me into it, but... Marcus and Michael are going to say, well, why would you go with them and not with us? <laughs> uh, hey, they can come too. Hell yeah, oh, they yeah. can come too. <laughs> oh, it's true. Yeah. So, Sam, you sell the t-shirts, and when we talked about the $5,000 check you just gave to RMEF uh, yep. on Friday, that came from the sale of t-shirts. Came from the sale of t-shirts. So, yeah, uh, we do $5 from every single item that's sold on our website goes back to different conservation organizations. Okay. So. Uh, our, was in conversation with RMEF about this Falls Creek project here in Montana. Right. And I know that they just secured all the funding for it, but mm-hmm. part of that was match donations from RMEF. Right. And so uh, we were just happy to be able to kind of alleviate some of that. I mean, even if it's a drop in the bucket at mm-hmm. this point, but um, alleviate some of that portion that RMEF had to put in and $5,000 going towards purchasing a property that opens up 26,000 acres of public. Yeah. So, and the, the last three donations that we've made have gone to uh, uh, projects just like that. So, okay. Yeah. So, awesome. how, how can they buy a t shirt? Uh, yeah, you can buy a t shirt right online, just publiclandtees.com. Like publicland? Publiclandtees.com. Okay. Yeah. Or just Google Sam Soholt. That's right. And, uh, yeah. 
the, you'll fill up like 300 There's pages a few pages now Google out search. there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, awesome. one thing people probably don't understand is that $5,000 to the Elk Foundation, the way they leverage that money, that becomes more like $30,000. Yeah. Because of how they're able to find partnerships and, mm -hmm. and matching money. They have people in Missoula that are just geniuses at this stuff. They're like, oh, well, there's this program and there's this. And we've got this former, you know, whatever has offered this, if we could raise that. And yep. so people don't realize how far their money goes. Mm -hmm. with not. And I say RMEF, but a lot of the conservation groups have kind of figured out yeah. how to make that work. and. Yeah, that's how RMEF has uh, been able to open up or improve 1.2 million acres of hunting. That's right. Uh, well, I say hunting access, but it's access for anybody. Right. And uh, the funny part is when I sat on the board of the Elk Foundation for six years, I just termed out. They have term limits, and I'm sure they're thankful. In my case, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> we don't got to throw him off here. He'll be termed <laughs> out pretty soon. But uh, a lot of people think RMEF buys this land, and it's just for special people to hunt on. Mm -hmm. So how the mechanism works, if anyone cares to know, is that they go out, they get an option to buy the land, or they have what's called the Strategic Land Protection Fund, which is a big account that is restricted to take action real quickly. Say this property is going to sell really fast and it's critical access or critical wildlife habitat. They'll go out and buy it and hold it. And then they'll work with all of these programs and partnerships to get as much of that money back as they can. Mm -hmm. They then transfer it to the BLM or to the Forest Service or to the state wildlife agency. And whatever money they're able to get back, they put back in that strategic land right. protection account. So it's like a revolving fund of, of how they do this. And mm -hmm. sometimes they have long windows where uh, a gracious landowner says, look, I'll give you a couple of years to raise the money. Right. Sometimes it's like, look, I'm in a bad way. I, I you know, I, I'm the executor of this estate and I got to pay estate taxes in six months. So yep. whoever shows up with the check within six months gets it. And so you, you got to be a little flexible that way. But the point is, RMEF, the only land they own is their headquarter building in Missoula. So I, I don't think you're going to be killing many elk in the no. headquarters <laughs> there. <laughs> Not too at, many. Yeah. At Missoula. So anyone listening, uh, that myth is, uh, is just that, a myth. Um, but I, I hope that more groups can get involved and, and find ways to work on public access. Like one of you said, we're all meeting with Onyx at some point today mm -hmm. yeah uh, they are if any group in the industry i know of is putting their money where their mouth is it's on it's them um, yeah. we did last year we did this marcus the public land llama thing that we sold we sold just like you yeah. sold t-shirts on and i think our pot of money from that oh, like $5,800 or $6,000 or something. Well, Onyx is going to match that. See, that's with, huge. With a much bigger pool of money. Yep. And they've asked me, you know, go to all these states that have these access programs. You know a lot of those people. Bring us some to consider. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And uh, they're, they're in discussions right now on a property that it's going to be an easement that if that easement doesn't get acquired, tens of thousands of acres could get blocked off by a new owner who right. might buy this private. Because the main access road, right now there's no easement and it goes through private. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, the for not relative to what it would cost to buy the land, but buying the easement, they're going to get so much done with that. And I'm I'm hoping that they. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to say where it is or what it is in case it doesn't get closed. But it's, right. it's fun to see that yeah. happening, and they're they're all on board with it. I'm I'm thankful. That oh, absolutely. Industry groups. Like That's that. a big deal. Yeah. That's so, what you got to have. You have to have partners that support your mission and even have a similar one in mind. Yeah. I can't even imagine how important it is to have something like Onyx finding public land back in your part of the world there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we use it every day. Yeah. I'm on that. <laughs> I'm on there every single day on my phone or on the computer. Yeah. Just constantly. Yeah. Uh, the, to me, that's been one of the biggest game changers of how I apply for tags and how mm -hmm. I hunt. Yeah. If I did not have Onyx in my palm, I I don't know what I'd Well, I'd be hunt, hunting how I did back in 1996. Mm -hmm. And I oh. find myself like I'll just be, I drive a lot, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know <clears throat> but I'll spot a, I'll spot a buck or I'll spot a turkey or whatever. And it's so fast, pull it up. I pull it up and even before the map loads, I can hit mark my location. Mm. And so I have all these random pins of <laughs> back and forth <laughs> across the seen, country yep. where I've seen animals. And then uh, on a few of those, I've been able to go back and then find public land surrounding like where I put that pin. Mm -hmm. And I've gone back and hunted and had successful hunts just from like, okay, quick, like boom, know exactly where that's at, you know, mm -hmm. but... Do you, I do that with turkeys all the time. Mm -hmm. You yeah. just pull up to a spot in the road that's kind of a high spot where you can probably hear this timber down below you and you can't see anything. It's it's similar to elk hunting, you yeah. know, hunting bugling elk in the rut. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll listen and it may be all private land around you, but there may be a little sliver of public in there that's half a mile, three right. quarters of a mile in. And if that bird gobbles anywhere close to that from that high spot, then I can go around and get on the public and yep. get back there. But I might not have heard him from the other side. Right. You and know, where you're at is most of the public land, state land or county land it's or a, it's a, a mixture. of everything. I mean, we hunt a lot of like federal Corps of Engineer, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Okay. Uh, we also hunt a ton of uh, national forest stuff and a lot of state. Mm. Um, in Missouri, you can't film on state lands. Really? So the only places that we hunt in Missouri are federal lands. Okay. Um, in Iowa, though, most of what we hunt in Iowa is state mm -hmm. or federal. Yeah. And they don't and They don't have a problem on no, state no. lands and in Iowa. Missouri is the only one that I'm aware of that mm. we've hunted in. Yeah. Um, but no, in D.C., you can't, you can't film on their lands. You can't even get a permit or anything. Yeah. It's just a hard no. Hmm. So well, that's a bummer. Yeah. How, how, how are you going to promote Missouri's state land? This? Well, that's what I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you guys want us to promote your stuff? Cause that's why we want to come there. We want to hunt your lands and they do such a good job of things right. like they're as far as their state agency goes. Right. And the, how they manage resources and all, all their public lands are just in great shape from what I've seen and, mm -hmm. you know, offer good hunting and they have a good amount of public land. So mm -hmm. they have a lot of access in comparison to a state like Iowa or Kansas, you know, mm -hmm. Missouri has a ton yep. of good opportunity there. Mm. Just can't show it. Just can't show it. <laughs> can't go out there. Can't film it. So it's Aaron's on his YouTube channel saying, 
Just take my word for it. Take <laughs> my word right. for it. <laughs> go to Missouri. Yeah. But Missouri is one of the few states that actually is, their game agency is partially funded by a percentage of the sales tax. Yes. That's, uh, there's, I can't think of any, I'm sure there might be another state out there that's like that. But Missouri is an example a lot of states look at to say, look, wildlife, conserved open space benefits every citizen. So at least a very small portion of that part of the game program or wildlife program should be funded by a, something other than excise taxes mm -hmm. and licenses. And that probably is a big source of them to be able oh, to yeah. do the things you talk about of keeping their lands in great shape. And It is. And there's a lot of hunters in Missouri. A lot more hunters in Missouri than there is in those surrounding states. Is it? Yeah. Hmm. You know, not to the, not like a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania. Yeah. But it's it's pretty high hunter numbers. <clears throat> I mean, I don't remember how many licenses were sold, but I'm sure it was four or five times the amount of what Iowa does. Now, yeah. granted, there's just more people in general in Missouri, but overall, way more public land huh. yep. to hunt. And Iowa, and people watch us hunting in Iowa all the time. Um, we live in Iowa right. and we're on public land and they think, wow, you know, that looks awesome. And it's great hunting. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong. But we just live in one part of the state where there's a good amount of public land. Yeah. And like everywhere else, there's not much yeah. at all. Yeah. Right. So. Mm. You know Tony Peterson? Yeah. Yeah. I was just on his podcast not too long. Okay. He was on mine and I was on his, but yeah. for the last few years, we've been conspiring about what to do with all of my Iowa deer points. <laughs> I've got enough Iowa deer points. I could hunt any unit in the state. And Tony tells me, have I got a deal for you? I'm like, what? He's like, no one will walk into this place. You would. He, he, and he points at me and says, you would walk in here. I'm like, well, I don't know. If, uh, if, is he thinking I'm an idiot? Probably. Or is, but anyhow, uh, in 2020, Tony and I are trying to yeah. match our schedules up to go to a piece of public land in Iowa so I can empty out this big pile of points I have in Iowa. That'd that, be good. Really? Yeah. Okay. You'd have a good time. You know, there's, and there's been an influx of, of non-residents applying in Iowa just in the last four or five years. It was taking about three points to draw the premier units, um, you know, four or five years ago. Now it's taken four, okay. and I wouldn't be surprised if it's up to five at some point in mm. the next five years. I've got like eight, seven or eight. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. You, I, I just like making donations to all yeah, of wildlife. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, South Dakota is making some changes to the non-resident hunting scene. Yeah, so. they are. Um, and again, just they're uh, doing some, it's kind of protecting the resident, resident. hunting quality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, they're having an application deadline now. And um, if, well, there's an application deadline if you want to hunt public land. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, some access permits for different areas of the state for some of the more like coveted areas with, right. that are a lottery too. But I think overall it's good changes. Yeah. So, and then uh, for they, like whitetail season, isn't it? Am I am I correct in saying that like the residents can hunt a month before? Yep. The yep. They just changed that, so um, re non residents can't start archery hunting until October first. I got year. you. Residents hunt September September first. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the on the. Um, rifle season side of things, they've changed it so everybody has to pick a first choice, um, where it used to be you could put in for multiple like first choices, mm. and then um, the guys who are willing to travel to a bunch of different areas, they might draw four or five buck tags in diff you know, different areas, 
And then the guys who like to stay home and hunt a certain area had a harder time drawing the tag. Oh, so, yeah. so overall, it will put more people, it'll put more people in the woods because more people will draw their first choice. Um, and a lot of those people that are putting in only want to hunt close to home. Right. Yeah. Right. So. I I always tell people, I, I think state agencies have to make their residents their highest priority. Mm -hmm. For sure. I, especially when the draw results come out, I get so much heat about, well, this state is screwing us over or, you know, yeah. it's federal land, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know how many times we've done podcasts and videos about the fact that if you're a non-resident, and we're all non-residents in 49 other states, mm -hmm. or you better be, because if, <laughs> if you're a resident in three or four states, uh, someone's going to be giving you a phone call. <laughs> Some legal issues yeah. to, to, to contend with. So. But I, in all reality, states do not have to give any non-resident opportunity right. if they don't want to. So right. ha glass half full, glass half empty, I yep. guess, is what it comes to. I look at any state that gives away some non-resident tags for me is a thumbs up of hey that's right you know that's more than by law they would yeah. have well to i give mean us look at montana they went to a you know it's whatever twelve hundred dollars for a non-resident to get a deer and elk combo now right and i mean i would imagine that the majority of that reason was well, two motivations was one it's extra money for people who are coming in from out of state like you know the state agencies get more money and two it helps protect the resident hunting yeah yeah it, that's that's a good point you know, and we were just talking about Iowa and Missouri, whitetail states. And I don't quote me on this because I don't know the exact numbers, but Iowa, they've had these hunter recruitment issues for some time now. And I think that's, that's one of their main priorities is that non-resident point system to bring them in to sell those high dollar non-resident licenses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and like I said, I'm not seeing resident kids in high school in Albia, Iowa, deer hunting. Yeah, wow. not to the not to the degree that that I feel like they should be. Yeah, yeah. well, you no. know, and that's kind of I can't imagine that that's a good strategy long term. <laughs> no, Shane Mahoney it but, describes it. He illustrated the way he describes it is a really good illustration. There's this big lump in a snake that's moving through the snake, and the snake has not eaten. <laughs> anything else so right. once that lump gets out of the snake if you don't have anything coming in the snake's gonna die right yeah. that's a really good way to describe it yeah so I, it's true i know people are except like, shane said it in a much like a very I, elegant I, I, yes, way yes <laughs> I, I can i can assure you that shane's way of saying it is gonna <laughs> yeah he he has there's nobody no orator that i know is better than shane mahoney no. uh, in our space and uh but all that stuff is for me comes back to the whole public land advocacy thing that our platforms are built on and I get a lot of heat. Why are you telling people this? Why are you showing them how to draw tags? Why are you talking about how the, you know, these five periods of elk hunting? I had to learn all that by myself. Well, for me, I wish somebody would have shown me that. It mm -hmm. would have, I think the three of us are bullheaded enough that we were going to become hunters and we were going to figure it out mm -hmm. no yeah. matter what. Right. But. Those aren't the people that need to help. Exactly. Those aren't the ones we need to worry about. Yeah, and people can complain about the woods being crowded or whatever, and I, I get it. Uh, 
But what's our option? Uh, unless we're going to go buy easements or buy land to put more hunters on, as we lose more and more of the private land, there's going to be more hunters on the public land. Right. And that tells me the public lands become even more important to the future of hunting. Mm -hmm. And those really cool landowners that still want to work with a state agency or whatever. They're more inclined to do so. Yeah. And that makes them even more important to the bigger picture. And we better start making sure we're listening to them also and doing what... We're working both our hunter behavior in the field, but the state agencies and the people trying to increase access, those landowners that are still, I'll call them the old style traditional landowner, they're a valuable piece of this puzzle. And we got to do what we can through whatever state access programs to to keep them in it. Otherwise, this crowding, whatever you want to call it, it's just, it's going to get worse, not better. Yeah, if you're if you're as serious as we are about hunting, then just be a leader, you know, for everybody right. else. You if you already know all that stuff, then you know how to figure it out. Yeah. And sure, it may get a little tougher in the meantime, but you've got the experience; you can figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Like some of the other people that don't have that experience yet, don't don't take it out on them. You yeah. know, that's just selfish behavior. Yeah. Well, that's why I asked both of you guys to help us with that project that we're yeah. doing with the International Hunter Ed Association. Mm-hmm. I'm not hosting any videos. I'm too old. <laughs> so we, we were asked by the International Hunter Ed Association to help them put together a video platform and a social media platform directed at new hunters, but even a more specific targeted group of new hunters. If you look at who goes through Hunter Ed, we have over 200, uh, well, as a total population, over 600,000 new people come into Hunter Ed every year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're recruiting, in some respects, enough hunters yeah, to replace right. those that For are sure. going out. But of those 600,000, there's a couple hundred thousand of them that never even buy a license. Right. And our retention over four or five years gets to a fraction of that 600,000. So the retention part of it, we recruit them to the, all right, you know, we're to this point, glad you identified that you want to be a hunter. And they go through the course, either an in-class course or an online course, and that's where we lose them. Right. Yeah, because they lose instruction, they lose mentorship and all those things they have to... Right. Have in order to continue. Yeah. And so this project, it's called Hunters Connect. And if you want to see it, you can go to huntered.com or by the time this podcast is out, uh, maybe, if not August 5th, whatever date uh, this podcast gets released, their YouTube channel, Hunters Connect YouTube channel will be live. Their social media channels of Facebook and Instagram will be live. And I was looking for people who were relatable to a younger audience and that target that we're focusing on here is, so I said 600 plus thousand people go to Hunter Ed every year, over 200,000 of those take the online course Mm -hmm. and that percentage is growing every year. And those people don't come from the mentored environment of the person who goes and sits in a class. The person who sits in a class probably comes from a hunting environment Mm -hmm. or culture. So the greatest number of people we're losing 
are the online hunter ed graduates because they're probably, and I'm oversimplifying here, but I can see them being in an urban suburban setting Mm -hmm. where they're just interested in hunting or food or the natural world. And so they jumped on, yeah, I'm going to take this class. And then we lose them. Yep. We lose way more of them than we do the in in class people. So that's what the Hunters Connect thing is. And I said, you know, I need some young, smart people who can present well. Smart. And that's where I, <laughs> I told the International Hunter Ed Association, I said, you know what? The hunting public guys and the Sam Solholt public school bus guy, we want to do some videos with them. And they gave me the thumbs up. So that, that's how you guys got... Yeah, I'm just proud to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, because that, yeah, that whole project is so much bigger than any of anything that all of us are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that's the, that's the future right there. Well, the days that you just mentioned it, the days of mentorship, the way that we learned are gone or Mm -hmm. dwindling. Yeah. Like you just don't have that anymore. Everybody, especially the new ones, um, they learn through the phone. Yep. They learn through the digital age of information. You, so you have to communicate that way. Yeah. It's plain and simple. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to um, various, uh, you know, organizations like NWTF, like Hunter, Hunting Heritage and that sort of thing. And that's the direction that they're trying to move as well because they're pushing mentorship and retention yeah. Yeah. hard as well as, as most of these organizations are. But I think that's, some, that's a space where we can really make some headway. Yeah. And th- these graduates, if, if they went and searched and found a hunter ed class online, you know they're accustomed to consuming information digitally. Mm-hmm. So these videos, they're going to seem pretty basic to someone who's been doing it all their life like we have. But we take for granted a lot. Oh, yeah. You got to put yourself in the mindset that you were at when you were 11 years old taking those classes. Yeah. Like, or, or even, you know, one of you said, yeah, I started hunting when I was six or nine or tagging yeah. along or whatever. By the time we're seven, eight years old, we know the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. And we know that, you know what, a 12 gauge is actually bigger than a 20 gauge. It seems counterintuitive, but yeah, yeah. You know, all this stuff, we know that, you know, north is this way on your car. The, the, there are so many things through osmosis and just the culture when you grow up in it that you learn by the time you're 12. Yeah. That then you're asking some 24-year-old who has a sincere interest in becoming a hunter of, oh, I'll just figure it out. <laughs> no, like that learning curve is way too steep at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we lose so many of them, I think, anyhow. Oh, and, no, it's a fact. And, and it's that's, I mean, you talk to the state agencies out east as well, and that's one thing that they are trying to overcome. A lot of them had the, the youth seasons that they started, you know, in the last 20 years. And those are awesome for recruitment. Right. But how do you retain those kids? They're like, yes, you take them hunting, you put them out there at a good time, you have a mentor with them, maybe they harvest an animal, that most of them have a good experience even if they don't, but then they want to go again down the road. They have to learn this stuff Yeah. Mm-hmm. at some point. Like one trip to the woods and one turkey shot doesn't result in a lifelong hunter. It's yeah. that constant learning process over the years. Yeah. I feel like this is a good way to reach them. Well, if you're listening to this, folks, and it's after August 5th. I hope you go to huntered.com. Uh, that's their homepage for IAGA's platform here that they're doing. 
and Hunters Connect are the names of both Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So hopefully people will, I mean, most of my audience, I think, has, has is a few years down the hunting path. Uh, and so when you see these videos, um, share them with people, make people aware that it's out there, especially new hunters. I, I don't expect that someone who's been hunting for 20 years is going to watch it and say, boy, I learned a lot with that. That's not the idea. Right. This is lowering the hurdle as much as we can for the person who raised their hand and said, I want to be a hunter. We're providing information that hopefully helps do that. So, yeah. But before we wrap up, I want to make sure the world knows how to reach you guys i'm sure they probably do but aaron you guys your youtube channel is the hunting public yes sir and you've got facebook instagram da 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 website whatever podcast what are they all the hunting public everything everything the hunting public uh, and you Just got a web, it. you got a website you got like the huntingpublic.com huntingpublic.com and if they go there they can find your podcast yep they can buy that cool hat you're wearing yep they can buy some T-shirts. They can put a bid in on the Smurf when you put it up for auction someday. <laughs> nah, I'm not selling it. No? <laughs> nope. You realize that when you retire that, there's going to be a... It, it's become such a part of your persona. You could probably sell it for way more than it would ever part out at. at I, maybe, metal. but think about that. <clears throat> like, I could maybe sell it through our Instagram page to, you know one of our dedicated followers or I could go down the road and put it on Craigslist and maybe get 250 bucks. <laughs> I, think <we> should, <laughs> so, I think we should crowd. The actual value of this thing isn't. I think we should just crowdsource and have it bronzed and then we'll park yeah, it. We'll put go. it at some public land somewhere. Yeah, we could do that. Or we could just shoot it with a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> that would be more Thought exciting. Thought about blowing it up with Tanneride or something. Like film it in slow motion. That'd be pretty cool. That would be more fun. Uh, so, folks, if you aren't subscribing to the Hunting Public uh, YouTube channel, you're kind of missing out. Thanks. I, I know how I'll say that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, we do lots of fun and crazy stuff on there. Try yeah. to show people how much fun you can have hunting turkeys and deer primarily and all sorts of other things. Mm-hmm. We had a yeah. golfing video last week. Really? That was certainly entertaining, but not <laughs> successful. Huh, a golfing video. Yeah, THP golf tournament. Didn't you title it like the I, worst I, golfers ever? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got to go check that one out. It was really bad. Was, you know, in the really CPA bad. world, you're expected to almost be mm-hmm. a scratch golfer. That's right. Yeah. Uh-uh. I don't uh-uh. golf. They they get mad because I'll kick it out of the bushes or I'll roll it up a ways, get a better lie or something. Or We hadn't even teed off yet, and a country club member came up to us and said, you guys can't park your carts here. And we had one on the tee box. <laughs> I was not mine. It was Jake. And Jake, honestly didn't know you know yeah. so he's like hey, you learn something every day I'm like, oh well we're it, not gonna make it through the first hole for those of you listening who golf and you know that i pick on <laughs> golfing i always say well if it was easy they'd call it golf uh, <laughs> that's why is because i've been ostracized from the golf world so i make fun of it now yeah and all my CPA peers, you know, they like right now, today, beautiful July day. They're down at Valley View or Riverside, one of the golf clubs here in Bozeman, mm-hmm. talking about their golf game. Yep. Bores me to tears, man. I, I would rather ha- be the target 
at a pellet gun contest, <laughs> then <laughs> it's like, give me a yeah. break. But I might go watch your golf episode there. Yeah. It, it'll be entertaining like I said, <laughs> <laughs> to see these guys trying to play mm -hmm. golf out there. But yeah, we got all kinds of stuff on the channel. All kinds of, of uh, mostly whitetail related stuff, whitetail hunting related stuff, and then turkeys mm -hmm. in the spring. We yeah. do small game and yeah. Yeah. hope to do a little bit of Western stuff this time too. Yeah. Cool. You do any fishing? Yeah. Okay. I've been fishing this whole trip. Oh, you've been filming it? I filmed a, I filmed a video. Okay. I got a vlog the other day of um, us, me and Mike fishing one of those little streams and catching trout. Okay. This was awesome. Cool. I, I freaking lose my mind when I hook in one of those things. <laughs> like, uh, this is a quick funny story. I know we're, we need to get out of here in a second, but I completely lost it yesterday when I hooked into this big fish. Like I was off by myself on this little kind of side channel and I was drifting over this rock, just how Michael told me. Uh -huh. He's like, you got to fish this little blue water in this cut right behind this rock. So I threw in there, threw my fly in there and I saw him come out of the bubbles, you know. Yeah. I'm like, oh crap. And then I saw my indicator go under and I hooked him and I don't have a net because yeah. I just flew out here with a backpack yeah. in my reel. Like I had to buy a $90 <laughs> rod up the road when I got here. So I hooked this fish and he comes out of the water and it's a huge rainbow huh. i don't I, I in mean, a little creek in a little bitty creek i mean it ain't, it ain't as wide as this room it's a huge rainbow and uh and i've caught some like four or five pound fish at trout parks back in missouri you know mm -hmm. that are <clears throat> stocked nothing like these yeah. and this fish is that big you yeah. know and he's getting even bigger now because <laughs> i didn't catch him and i have no proof of this so <laughs> anyway well i guess there is proof because mike heard me yelling as soon as i hooked him i saw him i'm like mike mike get over here and i start just yelling and losing it and eventually this fish takes me upstream and i'm not i don't know what i'm doing when i'm fighting him and i pull the hook out and i'm cussing you know yeah. and i turn around and there's these two little old ladies in a drift boat with these straw hats on like 30 feet from me <laughs> they just watched that whole thing and i was like yeah just had a big fish don't know if you saw that or not i was yelling for my buddy to bring the net so yeah i get pretty excited on these on these trout and we mm -hmm. will have a fishing video up soon cool get the net Get the net. That's right. Yeah, that, and my wife, she, yeah, that's one of her, I mean, she needs a tattoo or a t-shirt that says, get the net. <laughs> she's, and when she says it, she says it with all the conviction that our marriage hangs in the balance. <laughs> if this fish does not end up in the live well, we are going to arbitration here, mar marital arbitration. So for me, when I'm netting fish, I, there's a lot of pressure, man. It's yeah. like, holy cow, this, this could be really bad. So I understand the excitement. My wife, it is so fun to fish with her because she gets, she, she's the most subdued, quiet, modest person. A lot of people... The, question whether I'm really married. She's that, <laughs> that modest and that behind the scenes. But you get a walleye on the end of the line and you are, you, you, all this pent up modesty <laughs> explodes in the course of 30 seconds. <laughs> and if you lose that fish, oh man. Doghouse. Oh, it, it, it is not pretty. It, it's a, yeah. So you should blame Michael for uh, the, the guy running the net is always responsible for the well, lost fish. Well, in his defense, I had no net, which is well, it's kind. Of, it's somewhat but, needed in these <laughs> situations. But you know, you don't need a friend if or a yeah. net if you have a friend who has one. Yeah, and he does. 
He so. got he he helped me out yesterday. I yelled even louder when I hooked that big brown, and he came running over there. Yeah. I'm like waiting for this thing to break off any minute, and I'm trying to work him in. And I turn around, and here comes Mike running through the water. <laughs> I, I got a chance. At this one. Uh, so. Well, Sam, where can people find you other than where your school bus is driving around? Yeah. Are you on your way back to see yeah. family or something? Yeah, or? so I'm gonna leave tonight. I don't like driving in the heat because uh, no, it's just way you. too hot. Yeah, microwave. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I'll leave this evening and probably drive. I don't know, six seven hours. And, sleep for a couple and then keep rolling but driving back to south dakota tonight and tomorrow and then i'm actually officiating one of my best friend's weddings next weekend in minneapolis whoa so, yeah officiating it, Offici- it, when you said officiating i thought it was like a boxing match no or i'm uh yeah so, i'm or a wrestling performing match. the ceremony uh, oh yeah for nice. two of my good friends so excellent wow. this is my second wedding that i've done so really mm-hmm. back when you said we've got a lot of irons in the fire to make money sam's i mean a- i don't get paid to do this but <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's marrying people on the weekends yeah. that's right yeah huh. heck uh yeah so back uh back there for uh, at least a couple weeks because I'm I'm going to the Minnesota Game Fair as well mm. down in down in Minneapolis. So okay. that'll be a fun trip. But uh, yeah, if people want to follow along with what I'm t- up to, I don't have quite as many channels as uh, uh, Mr. Warbritton here. But uh, <laughs> uh, the best way is just my Instagram, which is at Sam Soholt. I also have a YouTube channel, which is just my name, Sam Soholt, and I'll I got. Uh, few things i can't talk about yet but some pretty exciting stuff coming up this cool. fall so all right well don't let all the cats out oh no that's right they gotta go follow along uh, is it somewhere west or is it somewhere uh it'll be all over the place again okay. yep. all right that's cool yeah don't want to yep don't don't want to <laughs> yep. ask for the the old saying in the accounting world is don't ask a question that you can't handle the answer that's right. when you find out <laughs> that's what right. it is so <laughs> yep. but, yeah but well, guys, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for all you do for the advocacy of public lands and public hunting. Uh, it's fun to watch you guys. Thanks. I, I really yeah. enjoy it. Thanks for having us on. Uh, it's, good to, it. it's good to talk to the original like public land guy in this in this space. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the guy who's been faking it for longer. <laughs> I'm just, I've just been faking it longer than anyone else. So. <laughs> but, well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, folks. Until the next time, uh, go out and do something fun.